Matthew chapter 16, and we'll look at verse 13. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 16, and we'll look at verse 13. And when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjonas, for flesh and blood have not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, we see two significant promises our Lord Jesus Christ mentions to his disciples. The first, we see the promise that Jesus will build his church. He said, I will build my church. Our Lord Jesus Christ promises and predicts the coming of the church building. One of the greatest mysteries is being unfolded now, the church before the disciples. The church was a mystery that was concealed, but now he begins to unveil and predict and promise that he will build the most greatest thing on earth, his church. I believe this is one of the greatest things on earth. The body of Christ, the great mystery revealed before us. I believe what we have here right now is one of the greatest things on earth and I'm glad to be a part of it. What a promise he gives. The church is often referred to a building or a clergy. It's misunderstood by many. They think the church is a building or a group of hierarchy. They think it, the church is even limited to a denomination. But I want to say to you today that the church is more than this. The church is an assembly that God calls out of the world to be part of his body, to shine forth his praises in a wicked generation. Now, I don't know about you, but that's something special. If we really understand what the church means, it's not a building, it's not a clergy, it's not dumbed down to a, you know, fizzled doctrine, denominational, uh, you know, statement of faith. It is a people that are living stones that the Holy Spirit of God possesses and uses for his glory. Now, the word church or churches is used about 114 times in the New Testament. And the word derives from the Greek word ekklesia, which means to be called out. It's like, if you will, if you remember the time that you were in school and you were in your class and the bell rang for the assembly. Well, you'd get every single class would be gathering together for the weekly assembly and they'll assemble together in one place. And so is the church. Called out, not from a classroom. It's, it has a deeper meaning of, uh, 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 than just a, you know, called out to assemble and to sing the national anthem. It's to be called out of the world, uh, of a, 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 a world that's full of sin, a world that is full of you know, devil-like spirits, a, de a world that is just absolutely governed by the little G God that we're caught out under uh, his authority and assembling together to make up his body. Now, this is a people that have believed in Jesus Christ, truly believed in Jesus Christ, not just a mere profession, but those that possess Jesus in their life. 
For Christ lives in me. Those that have been simply uh, born again and baptized by the Holy Spirit into his body. That's the assembly. That's the church. This is the very thing that God promised will take place. And by the way, we are a fulfillment of his promise. Right now. Still stands. Still moving forward. Praise God for that. Amen. Amen. Now the word... Church is unique that Jesus would build is because he brings Jew and Gentiles alike into this body. Galatians 3.28, there is no, neither Jew or, or Greek for all are one in Christ. And so we are Christians. We're not Jews. We're Christians. We're not Gentiles per se. We're Christians. Uh, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. We're Christians because we're in Christ. That's what matters. And a Christian is a Christ follower. A Christian is one that follows the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. So he's the builder. Many people think that the church started with John the Baptist, but it didn't. Jesus came after John the Baptist. The word church is the first time mentioned here, by the way. John the Baptist perhaps didn't even know what Christ would continue to do in his, in his full essence. So Jesus came after John the Baptist. He initiated the church. He's the one that will build the church. As a matter of fact, John the Baptist paved the way for Christ. And so second, of all, second of all, he's the owner of the church. He says, I will build my church. The apostle Peter is not the owner of the church. The pope or the priest or the pastor is not the owner of the church. Who's the owner of the church? Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. He owns the church. Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. And so we see Jesus is the one that adds to his body, adds to the church, Acts chapter 2. And the Lord added to the church daily, such should be saved. Acts chapter 5, and the Lord, sorry, and believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes, both men and women. So even Paul makes it clear to the Corinthians that God sets the members, every one of them in the body as it had pleased him. He's the owner of the church. He sets the members. Jesus said, I will build my <coughs> church. So Jesus is the builder. The word build there is significant because he uses his apostles and disciples to build the church. It's important to understand that. Peter, the apostles, uh, were, uh, played a significant part in laying the foundation of the church. As a matter of fact, the apostle Paul said he was the master builder. In other words, he was the chief constructor. He's the one that laid the foundation uh, God actually called him out to be an apostle, to be a testimony to the Gentiles, to bear his name before the Gentiles. And by the way, he fulfilled his course. The apostles were used as instruments in God's hand to build up the church, to lay the foundation that we would be built up. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. And the, look at this, the household of God, that's the church, and are built up upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ, him being the chief cornerstone. He's the one that holds all things together. Amen. Without him, everything will crumble. And so it was the Lord that gifted these men, enabled these men to build his church. And so while this promise was yet to be fulfilled, don't forget, Jesus was training up his men. As a matter of fact, Mark chapter 3, he called the 12. He ordained them and sent them forth to preach. John chapter 17, he prays and he says, Father, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. What was that? To train them up. And he said, they've kept thy word. 
Matthew chapter 28. He sends them forth, gives them the great commission. And he says, wait in the upper room, about 120, until the Holy Spirit will come down. And so this is where we see the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter uh, 1, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be my witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, which they were, in Judea, which they were, in Samaria, which they were, and unto the uttermost parts of the world, which they were. Now the Holy Spirit is the one who empowered the church. And so technically the church had already been uh, established 120 were in the upper room waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches at Pentecost, about 3,000 get saved. And the Bible says they were added to what? To the church. So the church was established in summary. The church was conceived with Christ and birthed at Pentecost. Jesus predicted it. He foretold it and, and it was fulfilled at Pentecost. This is the beginning. And God uses these men to establish the promise that Jesus said, I will build my Church, however, tonight, I want to focus on the second promise. I will build my church and the gates of hell, look at this, shall not prevail against it. I believe that. And we want to see what that means. I believe that what Jesus said in establishing his church has established and continues to move forward. And as it moves forward, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Shall not. That's a promise, amen? amen? He gives a firm promise to the church. Prevail means to overcome or overpower. And so the church would not be overpowered by the gates of hell. Should not, the, the gates of hell should not overcome. You know why? And I can't get into this, but we are overcomers in Christ. Where faith is the victory. Now let me just say, the gates of hell, if I want to put it this way, what is, this is my possible, possibly ex explanation, is this. When you have a gate, it is an entry to something. In this case, it's hell. Right? And Jesus spoke on the Sermon on the Mount in chapter number 7 that he says, enter into the straight gate, for wide is the gate that leads to where? Destruction. And so we can conclude the fact that the gates of hell leads to death and destruction. Right, so we can say this, possibly, possible meaning that death has no power over the church. Amen. No power. Remember what Paul said, O, o death, <clears throat> where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? But thanks be to God which give us the victory through whom? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, death for a Christian is not a problem, it's a promotion. For the Apostle Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Death was never a problem for a Christian or should never be a problem for a Christian. We should not be threatened by death because death is the great promoter for a Christian. But here's the thing. The main death threats come from who? As a Christian, as we move forward with God, as God has given us a mandate to fulfill the Great Commission... The, the, death the death threats come from those that are the enemy of the cross. And they wish to eradicate, who? Christians. And wipe them off the face of this earth. Has it been done? Now, persecution and martyrdom has always been, uh, you know, active 
from the first century to the 21st century. And we still yet continue. The church is still here. And we're going to see why. So we must understand that when the church of God is in a spiritual battle. A.W. Tozer said that, the, that we're, not, we're not in the playground. We're in a battlefield. Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against what? Against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness. And every high place, the little g, God, will stop at nothing to try to shut down the church of God. But here's the thing. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. Shall not. I believe that. Even though he's active and even though his forces and even though the enemy of the cross in the high places in government and religious officials are planning and plotting to shut down the church, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Because there's a promise here that I could claim and I believe it. I believe every word of it. It's not going to happen. Not on, not on God's watch. Amen? I want to say this to you. God is not trying to shut down churches that love him and are on fire. God is not trying to shut down his own work. God is going to fulfill his promise, not, not go against it. It's the devil that wants to shut down God's work. It's the gates of hell, death and destruction, that are trying to threaten the people of God from fulfilling the will of God. And so, Ephesians 6 says, put on the whole armor of God. We're not going to look at this in detail, perhaps another time, but you may what? Stand against the walls of the devil. Number one, what's the walls of the devil? His cunning, crafty, deceitful techniques. You think the devil's going to come very obviously and try to shut down the church or God's people? No, come on. Come on, let's not be gullible. And why does he say put on the whole armor of God? What's the purpose? Because we're in a battlefield. Paul makes it clear we're in a battle and it's not physical, it's spiritual. And it's against God's will, it's against God's work. But we have a promise. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So, the Apostle Paul continues to say to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. 2 Timothy 4 says, I fought it. You fight it. He says to Timothy, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. What does that tell us? That there is a, there's a moment to be a student, there's a moment to be an athlete, but there's a moment that God has given to every Christian that we must stand our ground and continue to do what God has called us to do without the interference of principalities and powers trying to shut the church down. When did the government ever have a say in God's business? Never. They try, but we've always been separate from church and state. Always. Give to Caesars what Caesars, and give to God's what is God's. In reality, I presume that Jesus is promising his disciples that when the church is built, and moving forward and fulfilling the will of God, there will be opposition and there will be resistance and there will be some that will try to overthrow the church. However, no matter what kind of attack or opposition may come, 
the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And that's a promise. They won't overthrow it. They're trying to, but they will not. Mark it down. They will not. Not on God's watch, listen to me, not on some of these disciples' watch either. We're going to see their courage and boldness. And brethren, we need the heart of these men to beat in, the, in this church. Where does that come from? From the Spirit of God. From the Spirit of God. I believe there's a fundamental reason why this promise is being fulfilled and has been and will continue to be fulfilled. So turn with me to Acts chapter 5. I want you to see this. I want to use these men as an example. We looked at Acts chapter 5 last week of Ananias and Sapphira that had internal problems, but now we have external problems. You know that things take place internally to try to hinder the work of God, but there are also things that take place externally that try to hinder the work of God. You agree with that? And so we need to be very careful that we deal with things biblically and with God's wisdom and with the power of God upon us. And so after the death of Ananias and Sapphira... The apostles continued to perform miracles and preach the gospel. God's power was upon them. The apostles were, were uh, uh, continuing to preach the word and people were getting saved and God will add or the Lord will add to the church many, many people. This is the book of the Acts, which is the Acts of the Apostles and the Acts of the Holy Spirit. We see how God initiated these first churches. In verse 12, have a look, by the hands of the apostles and were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Verse 14, many uh, believers were more added to the Lord, multitudes both men and women. Look at verses 17 to 18. We see because of their preaching and people coming to know the Lord, we see the apostles arrested. Now this is, by the way, the main reason for their arrest is for their preaching. Their main reason for their arrest is they saw people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. You think the, the devil wants that to take place? You think the devil wants people to come into God's house and worship God? Of course not. And so they were arrested for fulfilling the will of God and for continuing with the Great Commission. Look at verse 7 and 18. Then the high priest rose up and all that they were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with what? Indignation. They were angry. They laid hands on them. They manhandled them, the apostles, and what? They put them in the common prison. This would have been the public prison. And now God uses an angel to set them free. But someone said, locked doors are nothing to the Lord. God could use anything these days to continue to get his uh, you know, purposes done. Anything, angel, uh, anything God can use today. God was making them uh, freed for a purpose, by the way that the gospel will continue to preach. Have a look at verse 19. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go, stand and what? Speak. Go, stand and speak. That's their mandate. Go, stand and speak. By the way, their ministry was public. The, George, the, the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry was public. The disciples, any preachers, ought to have a public ministry out there. That was the ministry of fulfilling the Great Commission. This is part of the ministry. But out there was where the fight is. There's a little fights in the church and God help us know how to deal with them. Right, but out there is where the enemy is. And out there is where the souls are. And out there is where the devil has those people in, you know, 
his grip and the gospels are the only uh, power is to deliverance. The power of the gospel that delivers people from the hands of the devil who has blinded the eyes of those people. It's over there. It's out there that we need to go out. Yeah, go, stand and speak. Particularly here in Jerusalem. Though, imagine that. Standing and speaking Jerusalem there in Solomon's porch in front of the temple where Peter already healed uh, you know, this lame man and Peter and John were persecuted, thrown in prison, went through the same predicament and here again asked the Lord for boldness and the disciples says, okay, we're all going together. They went together now, the 12, not just two, to stand and speak the word of God, the word of life. This is what God wants every Christian to do, to be a, for the ladies to be a testimony, to testify, but for the men to go and speak the words of life without being ashamed. Now have a look at verses 25 to 28. <clears throat> By the way, let me just say this, God's commands are higher than the orders of those religious governments and authorities and the disciples realized this. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom ye had put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then went the captain and the officers and brought them without violence for the fear of the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now look at this. Did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? Uh, it was clear. To them it was clear. Don't preach the gospel. Don't preach the word of God. Don't preach in the name of Jesus. It was clear to them. Uh, by the way, the miracles weren't mentioned here. What, what was the main problem that they had? The preaching of God's word. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with this doctrine, this divine teaching, this teaching about the gospel. You have filled it. The whole Jerusalem is hearing the gospel. And you intend to bring this man's upon it, this black man's upon it. Religious rulers were absolutely exposed for their wicked, wicked decisions to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. He exposes them. As a matter of fact, he preaches them. He preaches and he tells them very clearly that they... Uh, crucified. They're the ones that had crucified the Messiah. And, uh, and by the way, they had no reason to be angry because when you see Matthew chapter 27, 25, when Pilate says, I have, I, I'm, not, I'm not dealing with this. You know what they said? He said, let the blood of him be upon us and our children. They took responsibility, yet they can't handle the truth right now. By the solid preaching, you crucified him. You know, this is what they were, you crucified him. You put him to death. Man, that's boldness. Stand and speak. Hold them responsible for their sin. This is what we're all about. This is, this is what the gospel preaching is all about. This is why the world doesn't like this kind of preaching. It doesn't like truth being told. And so verse 29, and Peter and the other apostles, I love this, answered, altogether, we ought to obey God rather than man. I, yeah, can you almost see this? Were they saying this like in, in sync? Or were they saying it one after the other? No, Peter perhaps being a fervent, we must obey God rather than men. Yeah, we must obey God rather than men. Yes, we must obey God. Rather, yes, all one voice saying, we must obey God rather than man. And that's what we need in the church today. One voice, unified. Because all of a sudden, if you do something wrong out there and you put in prison straight away, you look like the bad person. Can you imagine you in handcuffs right now like that? What goes in your mind? Oh, what did he do wrong? Ah, see, that, that, that's what comes in your mind. 
straight away. But we need people who say we must obey God rather than man. Amen. We must stand for the truth. We must preach the word. Because the gates of hell should not prevail. But they, these spirit-filled men moving forward, preaching, go, stand, speak. This is the authority that God has given them. And it has, listen, no government authority, no religious authority, no authority than other men can override the authority of God. When God says, go speak, that's what you do. And that's what they did. They were all with one accord. You know what's the devil's motto? Divide and conquer. That's what he wants to do. That's his... Well, the Bible says, be angry, be angry and sin not. Don't let, the wrath, the, uh, don't let your uh, son go down upon your wrath. He says, neither give place to the devil. And so the devil wants foothold. And if he can cause a, you know, division, hey, he knows how to do it. Last night I was out preaching and I was saying, hey, you know, I was saying to very specifically, Jesus died for your sin. And all of a sudden this lady from that's always there that tries to uh, hinder our ministry, says, no, he died for our sin, our sin. Yeah, he died for our sin, but he also died for your sin. We'll make it more personable so they can get convicted, so they can understand, you know, it was personable to me. He died for my sin. I am guilty. Have you ever lied before? Yeah, who hasn't? Everyone has. Never. Have you? Have you lied? This is the authority that God has given us to go and tell them and speak the truth about the words of life, and there are people out there that want to dumb it down. But you know what happens? A little wicked lady like that, your other brethren hear her, and they might get a little poisoned in the mind. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they might learn a bit of... I'm not saying that happened, but I'm just saying things like this take place and they try to divide us. You know how it is? It happens all the time. You go out on the street and they say, oh, I like how you said it better than the guy over there. The guy over there, man, you should... Oh, I like how you said it. How did he say it? What did he say? Uh, one time it kind of backfired. You know, you know, she came, this lady came along and she said, oh, I like the way you said it. You were polite and all this. And not to say that this other person wasn't polite or all the rest of it. I know what it was. And I just started to say, well, what about your sin? She goes, ah, oh, you're just like the other guy. <laughs> yeah. That's the problem. That's the problem. And that's the problem that we see here. We're going to see it later on, but they... they they wanted to kill the apostles because they were exposed among the people. But they said, we ought to obey God rather. We ought. This is a necessity. It's laid upon me. Hey, there's no discussion here. We're not going to come and have a board meeting whether or not we're going to have obey God or not. We ought to obey God. There's, there's no question here. In the beginning, the apostles submitted to the authorities. But when God delivered them, he says, no, you go and speak. Hey, I'm reaffirming my great commission to you. I've given you the uh, authority. Go, speak. Thank God for that. And they stood and they were staunched, unmovable, uncompromising. The white flag wasn't going to be raised. They were going to get the right flag of Syringa and say, we're done. This gospel preaching ministry is causing us to be put in prison and threaten our lives. We're done. No, we must obey God rather than man. And uh, verse 30 to 32, the apostles were not all talk. Peter gets right into obeying God and begins to preach. Notice his boldness. Notice this, they don't like it. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hung on a tree. 
Him have God exalted with his right hand to be the prince and saviour for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost whom God have given to them that obey him. You slew him. Can you imagine that? They're standing in front of the Sanhedrin. I was saying this the other day. The other day. Imagine standing before the Pope and the clergy and the Prime Minister and the President and the, and the, the spiritual uh, fornication that's taking place now and, uh, and just really going for it and preaching. Not holding their hands, not going with the flow, hold hands, kumbaya, but no, you're preaching. Jesus is the only way. There's no other way. Amen. You crucified him. Imagine that. Imagine the boldness of them just to stand and say, I'm not saying they probably lifted up their voice when they probably didn't have to. They could have just said, you put him on the tree. You crucified him. Can you imagine that? But you know what else they said? He gave him hope. But he came, the prince of life, to give us repentance and give Israel repentance, an opportunity to turn and give the Holy Spirit to them that obey him, the gift of the Holy Spirit to be born again. This is the promise for you and your children. And uh, look at verse 33. And when they heard that, they repented. Don't you wish it said that? Don't you, I mean, come on, let's be, true, let's be honest. Don't you wish that happened? Oh, it did for some, but these people, oh, they were cut to the heart. And what they do? They took counsel to slay them. Now, that's what goes on out there. We can't see it sometimes, but there are people plotting and planning. But when you trust the Lord that your life is in his hand and not a hair on your head shall fall without his permission, you can understand that all these will be just simply in vain. In vain. Because the Lord will take care of those things. If I pondered upon the things, you know, the accusations and the letters and the, and, and, and the just, the, oh, forget about it. And I have. And it's crippled me to no end. But when I focus on the Lord and I focus on his word and I focus on the promise that the gates of hell should not prevail. And then when my time's up, my time's up. And I'm happy to have my time up anytime the Lord wants it to be up. Amen. Amen. Then I have nothing to worry about. There's nothing to fear. Not when you're on the side of truth. Not when you're doing God's will. Not when you're preaching the truth. And so they were cut to the heart. They were like a sawn asunder in the heart. The, tr the truth sliced their heart. They took counsel to slay them. Slay them, kill them. But their response was terrible. And in Acts chapter 34 to 39, we see a Pharisee, Gamaliel, come and just try to just, hey, calm down the Sanhedrin and knock some sense into them. And he had some good sense. Now, that doesn't mean they were saved. He just had some good sense and reminds them about two examples that had taken place. Let's begin to read this. <coughs> Gamaliel was, by the way, he, he was the teacher of the apostle Paul. Paul was under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a doctor of the law. And uh, again, it doesn't mean that he was saved, but he was a prominent teacher. And he begins to stand and talk to the Sanhedrin to, to back off and, and, and listen to this. Verse 34, and he stood there one up in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law. He had in reputation among all the people and commanded, to, and commanded to put the apostles forth in a little space. In other words, give him some room. And he said unto them, ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves that what ye intend to do is touching these men. 
For, be, for before these days rose up Thaddeus, Th Th boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. That fizzled out. That was, that was just done. Thaddeus had about 400 followers. He died. They scattered, and that gang, mob, rebel ended. Didn't, it just went, you know, brought to naught. Verse 37, after this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the same day of taxing and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. So even that fizzled out. Didn't last long. Maybe they were revolting against the, the Roman government because of the taxes or whatever, but that was coming among the Jews or whatever. What Gamaliel was saying, it was bringing it to their attention that this didn't last. It's, it won't last. If it's of men, it won't last. Have a look what he said in verse 38. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men. Let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to what? Nor but. If it be of God, you cannot overthrow it. You can't overthrow this. You can't prevail. You're not going to overcome. No way. He had some sense. Lest happy ye find even to fight against God. And that's true. What an observation. Calls their attention. Gives them some good counsel. Verse 38. For if this counsel or the work be of men, it will come to naught. And that's true. Without God, it will come to it. It will fizzle out. Fruitless. It won't continue. The work of men, religion, and politics will one day come to the end. The Bible says in Proverbs 11, When a wicked man dieth, his expectation shall what? Perish. And every single religious system or uh, politic government will soon be cut off. What's the difference between the work of men and the work of God? God's work's eternal. Because for a Christian, even when he dies, it's glory. It's promotion. It's eternal. That's the difference. It's fruitful. This is why the Apostle Paul says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You know, Christians and the church look up. They're not, they're not here to stay. We're passing pilgrims. We're not here to stay. And so the question is, what happened when Jesus was captured? Remember, smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. That's what happened. And uh, let me just say, for the most part, in the beginning, in the work of the book of Acts, persecution scattered the Christians all over the place. Well, it was only to fulfill God's will. But it continued to move forward. Let me just say this, what keeps it going? The resurrection. Listen, the power of the Holy Spirit. So even though uh, we have leaders killed and, the, and, 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 and you know, his followers are scattered, God is able to regather them, empower them, and move them on, and it continues to thrive. It will not come to work naught because it's a work of God. God's, he, God's in control. It's, it's God's work. It's not men's work. If it's men's work, of course it will fail. But if it was God's work, it will continue. It will thrive. The death threats and the, and the murder and the martyrdom is only a test for Christians. That's all it is. It's a testament to God's grace, but it tests the Christians. I mean, how many people did Paul kill under his hand? And he knew that. In verse 39... 
<clears throat> Let me just say, although the Christians are pursued and persecuted unto death, this doesn't mean the church dies. The church continues and it will always continue. Paul the Apostle said, persecuted but not forsaken, cast down but not destroyed. Verse 39, but if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it. Lest happily you find yourself fighting against God. To overthrow means to destroy, to demolish, to throw down. They will not be able to destroy the work of God. Listen, none of us in this room will be able to destroy the work of God. You can try, but it's not going to happen. No one out there can destroy the work of God. They can try, but it's not going to happen. You only find yourself fighting against God. Christian, you're either going to be unified in doing what God wants you to do in this body, and if you don't, you're only fighting against the head. It's a reminder for every one of us, internally and externally. He's the head. He's the chief shepherd. And we must be subject to the head. The word, hey, listen, at the end of the day, we cannot overthrow what God is trying to do. And at the end, I'll, I'll have the little balance there. I'm not going to labor much. But we, we cannot overthrow what God promised. It's a work of God. The fundamental reason, look at this. The fundamental reason, one of the fundamental reasons, that the church of God will not be overthrown is because God is the head and the church is built upon a rock, not a sand. And guess who that rock is? Sorry, it's not Peter. Peter's name is Petros in the Greek, which means pebble. <laughs> it's the rock. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, he's the rock and the chief cornerstone. And I believe it's frickly framed and, and designed in such a way that it will not crumble. It will continue to thrive and, and, and move forward even in the face of adversary. Absolutely, that's when it continues to shine. And that's when God empowers the church for, to speak and stand. Were they thrown in prison? Yes. Were they beaten? Yes. But what does that mean? That doesn't mean failure. We're, we're in a battle. The battle's coming. And by the way, there's a lot of things that were going to take place that is going to be a greater threat to the church than what we see today. A greater threat. But let me just say this to you. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Are we going to have people falling and lack of courage and drawing back? Yeah, we see it today. It's happening before us. Christians are being tested. We are being tested. And what's going to keep us going is this promise here. That the gates of hell shall not prevail. Verse 40. And to him they agreed. So all the rulers agreed with Gamaliel. I said, okay, that's okay. That's okay. Well, well, at least for now. <laughs> Amen. And uh, look what they did. And they, when they had called the apostles, they beat them. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. There's another command. Don't go and speak in the name of Jesus. And then look at verse 41. They departed from the presence of the council rejoicing. That they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. This is grace-filled men. Spirit-filled men. What do you mean rejoicing? What, for suffering? No, they weren't rejoicing because they were suffering and beating. They weren't, hey, listen, they weren't rejoicing because they were bleeding. 
That, that's, that's nothing to be rejoicing about. I mean, that's just heavy, that's heavy stuff. We look at that and we see it word on the page. But they were beaten. They were scourged, humiliated, had their backs, you know, just really lashed. And they're rejoicing? Well, yeah, you know what they had in their mind. This is for the cause of Christ. It's almost like we are partakers in Christ's suffering. I mean, are we fellowshipping with Christ's suffering? I mean, if this is the same Peter before Pentecost, I mean, you tell me, I don't know. It doesn't look like it. It looks like something got a hold of him. It's called the Holy Spirit of God. And when he gets a hold of you, my friend, you cannot but. And the Spirit of God, one of it is joy, joy, joy. Even in your darkest hour, even if you're in your just prison cell, even if you're being beaten, it's a supernatural thing that takes place when you're in the midst of it. You probably will never be experienced it unless you go through it. It's called God's amazing grace. You can think probably perhaps the uh, disciples were thinking about the Beatitudes in their heads. Blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness sake and for my sake. You know, just ringing in their ear, rejoicing. These were courageous men that were rejoicing because they were suffering for the cause of Christ. Spurgeon said, Yet you are, a, he said this very sobering. We read, read this in the Bible Institute going through the book of Acts. But he's challenged the cowardly heart. He says, yet you are a coward. Yes, put it down in English. You are a coward. If anybody called you so, you would turn red in the face. And perhaps you are not a coward in reference to any other subject. What a shameful thing it is that while you are bold about everything else, you are cowardly about Jesus Christ. Brave for the world and cowardly towards Christ. We fight for our rights and freedoms and protest. And we're willing to lay down our lives on the ground and have been beaten and carried away for the worldly things and our comforts. That's what the world, you look at the world today, they, 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 they fight for freedom. They fight for climate change. They fight for uh, their rights. But what about Christ? What about the gospel? What about souls that are perishing? For other things you are bold, especially when it comes to money. But what about for the cause of Christ? Are you able to stand for that? Oh, you're not going to rip me off, mate. We're bold in a lot of things. But when it comes to speaking the word, at times we have a coward heart. May God help us not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to anyone that believes. He says in verse 42, look at this. And daily in the temple and in every house, they, look at this, ceased not. They continued. And teach, to teach and preach what? Jesus Christ. They didn't stop. These guys were preaching machines, even with their back torn. 1 Corinthians 9, 16, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for the necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me, if I preach not the gospel. That's the Apostle Paul. Woe is unto me. Now you've got to understand one thing. The Apostles here weren't rebels. They weren't trying to overthrow the government in any way. They weren't trying to protest about anything. 
They were just concerned about one thing and that was the, that was the work of God. That's all they cared about. They weren't there trying to just, hey, hey I'm going to get the... No, they were there about the work of God. And when you see the Apostle Paul contend later on in the book of Acts and stand before a court, it's not because of his own rights, but rather he wanted the gospel to continue to move forward. It wasn't about the Apostle Paul. It was about the work which God called him to do, that God would have him to do. For these men, it was the same thing. These were God filled, spirit-filled, grace-filled men that cared about the work of God that didn't want it to cease. The Apostle Paul was so in love with the Savior and as a result, listen to me very carefully, he was in love with souls. Even government authorities. He stood with, you know, before King Agrippa. Listen to this. He stood before King Agrippa King Agrippa says, hey, Paul, you almost persuaded me to be a Christian. Look what he says to him. He says this, and Paul said, I would to God not on, that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day will both almost and altogether such as I am accept these bonds. I don't think it was a Calvinist. I believe he wanted all men everywhere to be saved. That's what his heart, King Agrippa, not only you, but anyone that hears my gospel, I wish they were saved like me, except these chains. That you would not be persecuted. And put. You know what Paul the Apostle wanted for the government officials and those that were in authority? Salvation. Salvation. Now, how did they have this disposition? How these, oh, we know they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. But there has to be a responsibility from our part, right? Well, let's go back to Acts chapter, uh, sorry, Matthew 16 and have a look. There has to be a responsibility from our part. Have a look at verse 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man come after me, let him what? Deny himself. Deny himself. What's the next one? And take up his cross yearly. Does it say that? What does it say? Daily. Why does he say that? Is there a tendency to draw back when the gates of hell pursue? When the death, breath, death threats come? I mean, come on, let's get real. There is a tendency. And before you can pick up that cross, you have to be a dead man. Deny yourself. Listen, brothers and sisters, you, if you haven't done it already, you have to determine right now, as we heard this morning, we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. He owns us. And so we ought to live for His glory. How do we do that? Being willing, listen, to fulfill the Great Commission, even in the face of adversary, even in the face of persecution, even when we're pursued, it's easy to preach the gospel to people that listen. Easy. Well, it's easier, I should say. Preaching the gospel is my uh, big responsibility. But you know what I'm talking about in the context that I'm preaching. But it's difficult to preach to those that despise you and to those 
that persecute you and perhaps, listen, threaten your life. But when you deny yourself and you're carrying that cross daily to follow Christ, to walk in his footsteps, as the Apostle Paul says to the Philippians, we're not only caught to believe on him, listen very carefully, we're caught to suffer. But for what cause? Well, if you read the whole chapter in chapter 1, it was for the cause of the, of, of, of the gospel. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so, there's no following Jesus if we're not picking up that cross daily. And listen, there's no picking up crosses if you're not going to deny yourself. You know what's coming, and it ought not to be a surprise for us anymore, but it's coming. That little devil, and I say this in a very, in the name of Jesus Christ, is working 24-7. Listen, our days are numbered, but he knows his days is numbered also, and he's working 24-7 to try to stop the work of God. Is he going to prevail? No. He won't prevail. God says he will not prevail. See, see, you say, what is he doing then? He's a fool. But you know what takes place? And this is the balance. Not that the gates of hell prevail, but listen, if the Christian no longer does that very thing that God has caused them to do, God can easily go and blow out the candlestick anytime he wants. And the church still functions. They go out letterboxing perhaps. They go out and contend for the faith. They preach and warn against uh, false teachers and they still have their services but no knowing that their candle is blown out. That's a reality. The gates of hell should not prevail but you know what? Our candlestick can be blown out. So what was the problem with the church of Ephesus? They did everything. A1, he had no problem with that concerning some of their practices, but they what? Left their first love. You say, what, what's this first love look like? Okay. Let's look at the life of the Apostle Paul. I count all things but dung. All things is all things. Uh, Acts 20, I count my, not my life dear unto myself. Why? Because I want to know his power, the resurrection. I want to share of his sufferings. I want to know him. I want to press toward the mark, the high calling of God. To tap into something that is something special. It's something special and beyond us. But it has to have a disposition of we are dead. We are completely dead to self. We are truly crucified in Christ, in position, in word, and in practice. And if we don't, then we're just put on the side. We continue to do some things that deceive us. But that day of reckoning will come and God will bring all things to light. Keep reading. Let's have a look. Matthew 16, and he says this very clearly in verse 25, for whosoever will save his life shall what? Mm -hmm. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall what? 
That's the disposition of a Christian, or ought to be. For what is a for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in his glory of his Father with his angels, and then shall he reward every man according to his works. What do you mean you're going to go on the cross? You're not going to go and suffer. Get behind me, Satan. Thou savorest not the things of God. But after Pentecost, he did. So what happened at Pentecost? I, all things that Jesus taught them came back to them. Reminded them what he invested in them. All the words that he's spoken to them, that was part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to remind them the things that Jesus taught them. And by the Spirit of God, they fulfilled it. And by the grace of God, listen, they were dead men. And we see that, what it, you know, if we, if anything that we can get from the apostles, we can get their heart. You know what the apostle Paul said to the church at Philippi about Timothy? He's like-minded. He naturally cares for your state. For all men care for their own things, but he cares for you. He cares for the flock. Oh. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, quickly have a look. Look at this. In Revelation 12 verse 10, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation, strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. That's all he can do. He's not going to prevail. We see it from this text. He did not prevail. And they overcame him. How? By the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony. Why? They love not their lives on the death. So yes. A memory to verse. A memory to learn. A memory verse to memorize. But listen. Are you going to live it? Are we going to live it? Hmm. Only by God's grace. You think I'm going to be able to live it? Nah. But God's grace in me. And by God's Holy Spirit in me. So when that day comes, God will give me boldness. Because I've determined long ago I'm dead and done. We must obey God rather than man. Warren Weasby said these words. Neither the threats nor the beating stop them from witnessing for Jesus Christ. If anything, this persecution not only made them trust God more and seek greater power in their ministry, true believers are not quitters. The apostles had a great commission to fulfill and they intended to continue as long as their Lord enabled them. And I'm saying this to you. No pandemic is going to stop me from winning people to the Lord and baptizing them. No pandemic. No threat. 
I don't care what kind of pandemic is. If I get shot baptizing someone, let it be. As long as I'm fulfilling the will of God for the glory of God. What's taking place today is absolutely a devilish work. Has God allowed it? Absolutely. But what does God want his church to do in the face of adversary? Quit? Retreat? Turn back? No. No, he wants us to move forward, listen, with the whole armor of God put on with prayer, piece by piece. And by God's grace, I'd like to labor on this some other time. Hey, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. And let me tell you, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If, I don't, if, if I'm just put down, don't you think God can raise up another person? Yes, of course. If, like I preached before, if the, if, we, if the saints are silent, guess who's going to sing? They can gag us all they want. But the saints of God, those that are filled by God's Spirit, will continue to sing even when they die. Have you seen someone die in front of you singing a hymn? The first person I saw someone die singing a hymn was my mum. Can you die singing a hymn? Wow. I don't know about you, but that was inspiring to me. Seeing my mum singing a hymn on her deathbed. That was God's measure for her. That was God's faith and grace for her, but it was a beautiful sight. I look at that and say, am I going to go that way? By God's grace, I hope I die in a way that will glorify God. Amen. Hey, the gates of hell should not prevail. Do you believe that? I believe that. God is awake and at work. Brethren, the church is not in captivity. Maybe some Christians, but listen, not the church. Do you believe that? I believe that. It's not in captivity. Maybe some Christians, but not the church. Because the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Read the book of Acts. Read the epistles. Read Revelation. And it will only become clearer and clearer. And you see, right at the end, God prevails. We're on the winning side. Faith is the victory. We are overcomers in Christ we cannot be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. I don't know about you, but that's something. But who wants to talk about death? Who wants to talk about persecution? But did you know, Christian, that's the reality of Christ followers, and we've got to get used to it. We're not inviting it, but that's the way of a Christian. Read your Bible. We're in a battle, not a playground. May God help us, every one of us, to claim this promise and that the gates of hell shall not prevail no matter what takes place. No matter what pandemic we see, the gates of hell shall not and will not prevail. That's a promise 
that I can lean on and depend upon by God's grace for his glory. Let's pray.